Wasn't that uh, marvelous? Thank you, Tommy. That was really beautiful. Charlotte, your accompaniment. Where'd you go? Hey. Just terrific. Thank you. Tommy, I, I have one suggestion. A little presumptuous, I guess. But I, I really wish you'd put yourself in your music a little bit more. <laughs> uh, I, I feel that way about preaching. You know, uh, Abraham Lincoln said he liked to see, see a man preach like he was fighting bees. Well, that, uh, that's true. That's a quote. I mean, Abraham Lincoln didn't tell me that, but I have, uh, I have read that about him. But I, I love people who do, whatever they do, they do enthusiastically. In fact, uh, Enthusiasm, as you well know, means to be filled with God in theosism, to be filled with the Spirit of God. And that the music in this church is, and it's because of the leadership and because of the participants and because of the praying, and it's all part of worship. It's always true. Historically, the great music has always accompanied great spiritual awakening. Happened historically. Go back and study the history of revivals. And along with it, you will see a corresponding revival of music, particularly congregational singing and praise singing. And uh, that's true in our church, and I know you're grateful to all of the people who make that possible. Of course, you make it possible because uh, I, I've been in churches where the kind of music that our choir sang this morning or every Sunday morning or like Tommy sang tonight or Martha this morning uh, would be greeted by a, a, an icy uh, sort of response. There is not that interplay between congregation and, and uh, chorale and musicians and minister and preacher uh, that exists here. And so preaching is a corporate experience. It's something that goes on between us. And music is an integral part of that. And chorale, I love you being here Sunday morning. 9.30 and 11 o'clock and back on Sunday night and I want you to know personally how much it means to me and I know how much it means uh, to all of you and I think you just ought to say it again. We thank you all for what you did. You know Martha told that uh, fascinating story this morning which we talked about uh, over in Hawaii when it happened and we were on the on the beach and the man was preaching and as Martha said I uh, we both agree I, I went down stood rather near him I really wanted to talk with him and and to meet him and visit with him personally because uh, but uh, he was kind of turned off to any personal conversation he's a sincere fellow and very uh, enthusiastic and I appreciate, appreciate anybody who endeavors to preach the gospel. And as Martha said, I've been in a lot of, we have, I've been in a lot of street services. I preached uh, once a week on uh, the streets of the French Quarter in, in New Orleans for a year. And I know what street preaching is. And, uh, but it was well planned. We have a choir and an organ there and loudspeaker and public permission to do it. Would have big crowds of people, and, uh, but uh, it's a different kind of preaching than, than here on Sunday morning or on Sunday night. 
and I've, I've preached on the street a lot of places. It, it wasn't the fact that the man was preaching, as Martha well said. It wasn't that. It was the spirit of it. It was the feeling of judgment, condemnation, as though everybody that was there was going to hell because they were there and that everybody was doing something wrong because they were doing something relaxing. And that is too often part and parcel of a large portion of the Christian world, that if something is pleasurable, refreshing, recreating, humorous, that it is not spiritual. Now, we Baptists come uh, from a, a background where we've been influenced by that. Now, our early forefathers were not like that at all. You go back to our Baptist heritage in Europe and in England, and you will not get uh, that feeling. It only got picked up with the influence of uh, the Puritans uh, in early America. So, uh, and uh, as did a, a lot of the evangelical world. But anyway, the fellow was just giving everybody a hard time and saying it would be better in, so in the judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it was, would be for everybody there. And uh, I looked around, and I didn't see anything that looked like Sodom and Gomorrah to me. I, uh, and, and I know what those words mean. And, uh, and there were people getting sunburned. And uh, there were people who were having a good time uh, playing in the surf, but there wasn't anything uh, immoral uh, going on. But, and then, the, then that incredible experience of that man crying for help and those lifeguards going to his rescue, one of the most tender, beautiful pictures of what the gospel really is. And so Martha and I got to talking, and I got to thinking, and I did some more thinking on the way home. And I want to talk to you tonight for a few minutes about what Jesus preached at the beach. Jesus went to the beach. In fact, most of his ministry was at the beach. The vast majority of the ministry of Jesus was in Galilee, all around the shores of the Sea of Galilee, a beautiful place. In fact, many of us who have been both places agree that I have never been to a place that reminds me as much of Hawaii as Galilee, northern Galilee, Tiberias, Bonius, the rainforest, the headwaters of the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, beautiful, water skiing and swimming and snorkeling, and it's a great vacation place. That's why some of the cities were built there, Tiberias. Caesar built the city there because it was a vacation spot. Well, that's where Jesus had the predominance of his ministry. The first two and a half years of his ministry, the vast majority of it spent right there. And so I have just, uh, there's a great deal more that I do not obviously have time to talk about tonight, but there's a marvelous progression in the Gospel of Mark that I would like you to follow along with me if you have your Bible tonight. And we're going to do sort of a semi Bible study here because I want to show you some progression in the beach ministry of Jesus. 
And it's interesting to point out also in, in this connection <clears throat> that the most severe things Jesus had to say to people were not folks working and playing or relaxing at the beach, but at people working at worshiping. The most severe things Jesus had to say to folks were people who had the wrong idea about religion, not about recreation. At the temple in Jerusalem, some severe words were said. Not on the beach, at Capernaum. Mark the first chapter, the 14th verse, and the second chapter and the 13th verse. 1, 14, let me read. If you don't have your Bibles, I'm reading now the calling of the first disciples. Let me begin in the 16th verse. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful place. I tell you, I've stayed in many nice hotels around the world. I've never stayed in a more beautiful, relaxing, inspirational, invigorating hotel than the Tiberius Plaza. It is right there. Don Smith sitting down here on the second row, nodding his head. There may be some folks in the choir behind me who are there nodding their head also. It is just indescribably beautiful. And it's made more beautiful because of the inspiration associated with the place. And that's where he was. I can see why Jesus liked to be in Galilee. I like Galilee. You'd like Galilee. He walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Second chapter, 13th verse. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. It's called the Sea of Galilee. It's called a lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. He was a bad guy. Here was a man who'd sold out his brothers. Here was a Jew who was a turncoat, a quizzling, who was working for the Roman invaders and taxing the Jews. He was hated by the Jews. Did Jesus jump on him? Did Jesus say it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the judgment than for you? He said, no, follow me. Come follow me. I want you. And Levi got up and followed him. First thing Jesus preached at the beach was he called people. He called them. Called them to come to him. Called them to follow him. Called them to trust him. Called them to a life of joy and of peace and of commitment. He still does that. That's the first thing he does. He begins with a call. He initiates it. The gospel begins not with our seeking God, but with God seeking us. 
The gospel begins not with our call to God, but with God's call to us. Adam, where are you? Adam was not looking for God. God was looking for Adam. Simon was not looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for Simon. The initiative is with God. The call is with God. The invitation is with God. Now there's also a call at times for us to disengage from the activity that we have been in, not because it is bad, but because we need a new direction, even though it may be for a brief period of time or it may be for a lifetime. There were times when these disciples went back to fishing. Not anything wrong with Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John being involved in the fishing business. Nothing immoral about that. But Jesus called them to disengage themselves from that activity to get involved in a new activity with him. Sometimes he calls us to disengage ourselves from the activities that we're involved in for the purposes of relaxation. Now, uh, I come out of the same, pretty much the same sort of religious background as most of you. Maybe some, our backgrounds, a lot of us, vary a little bit, but there's a great deal of of a similarity to, to a lot of our histories, I'm sure, because <clears throat> I know you pretty well, and many of you very well, and you know me, and a lot of us come from the background that if you're not, you know, I mean, if, if, if you're not working all of the time, and if you're not tired uh, most of the time, you're not really a very good Christian. If you are not perspiring, you are not inspiring. And consecration and fatigue have a very direct correlation in the theology of a lot of folks. I'm not putting down work. I am not minimizing the need that you and I have for being involved actively, enthusiastically in whatever profession God has called us to. But there is a time for all of us to get away to listen again to the call. In fact, Jesus did. You look at the life of Jesus and repeatedly you will see him and nobody ever had a bigger job than he had, right? As important as your work is and as I feel my work is, not one of us here is engaged in a more important work than Jesus Christ was engaged in, right? I mean, that's just uh, hyperbole at its most hyperbole. That's exaggeration beyond exaggeration. Not any of us here doing anything is important is what Jesus was doing. And he had to disengage. He would pull back and listen to the Father. He would go off by himself. He would get apart. He'd be still. He'd think. He'd relax. And he told those first disciples to do the same thing. Later on, after a very active preaching mission, they came back and, man, they were all geared up and fired up and excited because they had seen some fantastic things happen. And they said, when is the next evangelistic crusade? Where is the next meeting? Where can I preach tomorrow? And Jesus said, you're going on a vacation. You're going to come apart and rest a while. 
that word has been played upon at times, it's well worth repeating. If you don't come apart and rest a while, you just finally come apart. And Jesus told his disciples to come apart and rest a while. Now, I have to talk to myself about this, and Martha helps talk to me about this, and has helped me more than any other single human individual to deal with this problem. And it is a, a problem, an attitudinal problem. That is just as spiritual to back off and listen as it is to move in and be actively, enthusiastically involved all the time. In fact, why do I think, and why do some of us think, that what Jesus needed and what he commanded the disciples to do that we don't need? Are we somehow more spiritual than they? More superhuman than they? More essential than they? More indispensable than they? Our work more important than their work? I've thought about it a lot. The problem may not be devotion to work. The problem may be pride. The problem may be a very unhealthy form of addiction to something good. But addiction nonetheless. Elijah had the same problem, didn't he? Sure did. Go back and read about Elijah. I mean, you talk about a man who had a crusade. Uh, he called fire down from heaven, killed hundreds of prophets of Baal, and uh, then after all these marvelous, mighty victories on the top of Mount Carmel, he got so discouraged that he asked God to let him die. Just started feeling sorry for himself, and he was down in the dumps, and he said, I'm the only one that loves God anymore. That's what he said. I'm the only one that remains. And the Lord had to correct him. He said, come on, Elijah, get off that. That's not exactly the way that it was. it was written down. It may be the way that God said it, but God said, come on, Elijah, get off that. You think you're the only one that can preach, and you're the only one that can teach, and you're the only one that can serve me, and you're the only one that cares. Listen, Elijah, I got 5,000 folks that have never bowed their knee to Baal. Now, come on. Pull back a while. Back away and listen to the call. You can get so busy giving and get so involved in sharing that you forget you're you're beginning to lose the capacity to listen. Now, I, I want to say this not, be, uh, not because I, I'm, I'm asking you to feel, uh, certainly not to feel sorry for me, no, no reason for that, nor to feel that I'm trying to impress you with how hard I work because I don't know anybody that doesn't work hard. I, I don't know anybody that is not busy. I mean, I, I maybe a few, but 95% of the people that I have anything to do with 
are just trying to keep a lot of balls in the air and trying to do a lot of things and trying to do a good job at many things. And so, but, but I did a diary on my, on my life uh, the last few months. In fact, I keep a diary. I've done it for the 24 years that uh, I have been here. I can go back 10 years ago and tell you where I was at 10 o'clock on July the 7th, 1962. I keep all of that. And uh, where I had a funeral or where I had a wedding or where I preached or even most of the time the hospitals I went to. So I, I have something of a, it's not a much, as much of a journal in the sense of ideas as it is just a, a diary of my own uh, days and weeks and years and now decades. But I looked at the last seven and a half months of my life and God convicted me. Last June we came back from Israel. I have not been away from Trinity for a Sunday until two Sundays ago. I've not been gone for seven and a half months. And uh, boy, it's in some ways I believe is the most exciting seven and a half months that I've ever spent. I've never enjoyed preaching more than I have in the last six months. It's exciting to me. And I look forward to it more now than ever. But I, I took an inventory of my life the last seven and a half months. And I had preached 121 sermons in that period of time. That's here in church, two on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, sermons around town, talks, convention meetings, and that kind of thing. 18 weddings and funerals. And all the things that all of you men and women do in your work, counseling and conferences and committees and administration and television and correspondence and interviews and community activities, the United Way and United San Antonio and, and telephone. And I tell you, if, if you're on television and you preach the gospel, and you have an unlisted telephone, friend, you get a lot of interesting calls at some amazing times of the day and night. And I got away, and you know what I realized and what God impressed me that I needed to do? And maybe the experience that I have had and am having will be of help to you, which is the only reason I'm telling you, because it's been a help to me. I'm going to work more at finding times to listen more. And he's called me to that. And I think maybe he's calling all of us as a church. I think maybe most of us do a better job telling the story and listening to the story finding time to soak in it you have to get disengaged from some things and that's hard for us to do isn't it to get disengaged from some things to let our minds float in the spirit of God 
and what he says to us. I don't think God speaks loudly. It's the still, small voice. Well, to hear the still, small voice, I do, and maybe you do, need to find some times to be still. And know that he's God. And listen. Need to get in touch with creation. I think the church spends too much time indoors. I, I wish we could worship outdoors more. I think we, we lose touch with the world around us. We lose touch with the fact that we are also a part of the physical creation. Lose touch with our environment. And living in an artificial environment so much of the time, we become like what we live in. Artificial. We need to work against that. We need to find some time away from bricks and carpet and air conditioners, and cars, and buildings, to listen, to look. First thing Jesus did was called. I need to move on quickly. Next thing he did was healed. Isn't that an interesting progression? And there's a progression here, and I want to point it out to you, and I want you to make a note of it in your mind. I'll come back and remind you of it at the end. The third chapter of Mark and the seventh verse. This is, follows the, this is the, one of the next things in the progression. Also at the beach. We're still at the beach. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Here they are, back at Canyon Lake again. Back at the coast again. Back at the river again. And a large crowd from San Antonio followed. It says Galilee here, but you can insert any name or place. When they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, and Sidon, the big cities. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many of them, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. The call, now the healing, and the healing came with a touch, and they were healed of their diseases. D disease. Dis. Ease. That's where the word comes from. D-I-S-E-A-S-E. Dis-ease. The loss of ease. Now the loss of ease can be caused by some physical infirmity, but it can also be caused 
by spiritual infirmity or emotional infirmity. It can be caused by many fevers, physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual. And he calls us to let him touch us. That happened down at the beach. What Jesus did at the beach, he healed. Then what did he do? Fourth chapter and the first verse. On another occasion, Jesus began to teach by the lake. Notice it when you read your Bible. How much of what he did and said he did at the, at the beach, at the lake. Began to teach by the lake. The crowd gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, and then you go into parable after parable after parable. The first one's the parable of uh, the sower. Then the parable of the lampstand, and the parable of the growing seed, then the parable of the mustard seed. All of this from the boat, all of this at the beach. He called them after they heard him, after they listened, after they were touched, then they were ready to be taught. They were ready to be taught. The dis-ease had gone, some peace had come. Enough quiet had come that some truth could begin to get through. So he told them some stories, told them parables. There's a great revival going on in literature. Some of you who read uh, know about it, and I hope all of you read, but there's an interesting revival going on in storytelling, going on among a, a lot of young people. Some fascinating books are being written. I just uh, read one this past week on telling stories. A lot of young people are getting together. They're tired of television and they're tired of just listening to music. They're getting together and sitting around in groups and they're telling stories. Reminds me of what we used to do on the front lawn at Claremont. We'd sit out there in the evening and everybody tells stories. Make up stories. Parables. Well, here's Jesus. That's the way he's teaching. Teaching in parables. Seeing stories and truth in life. Now listen, until you get away from the pressure of things, until you get out of that tyranny of activity, that busyness, not B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S, -E I'm talking about the other kind, the B-U-S-Y-N-E-S-S, -S, the busyness. And it can be tyrannical. And until you break that cycle sometimes, you don't begin to see the parables in life. I really don't think Martha and I would have noticed what happened at that beach in the same way that we noticed it had we not been disengaged from the activities that we were normally in, would we have seen the, the contradiction, the parable, the story in this man standing on the beach preaching and lifeguards going out into the ocean to do the very thing that Jesus came to the earth to do to save people. And they were both taking place at the same time.
And the guys who were on the surfboard didn't realize it. They were preaching the gospel. That was gospel. What was good news to the man out in the surf over his head about to drown that it was going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the judgment than for him? That's not good news for him. Good news for him is a Hawaiian lifeguard on a surfboard pulling up there and saying, Getting on, get on board. That's good news. That's gospel. Wouldn't have noticed that. We'd not been disengaged enough to be taught. It's interesting he begins with the parable of the seed and the soil. Compare the soil to a person's soul. You know, you and I, our souls, like the soil, can get so hard with activity, walking over them so much, driving over them so much, routine stuff over them every day, same thing week after week, year after year. If you put the gospel seed on there and it couldn't get through if there was an air hammer in its hand. If soil's going to be any good, you're going to have to let it rest occasionally, aren't you? If soil's going to produce anything, you've got to let it have some refreshment occasionally, don't you? If soil's going to produce anything, you have to let it relax occasionally. Or it can't even hold the seed. So he teaches by the lake. And then the last thing, or not the last thing, but the last thing I want to talk about because it follows in this progression. Here he's been at the, he's been at the beach. I don't know how many hours he's been there. How many days he's been there. That day, here he's been teaching these parables, about two or three pages of them here in, in, uh, in my New Testament, beginning from the first to the fourth chapter, and all these parables he was teaching. That day, same day, when evening came, he said to the disciples, let's go over to the other side. Let's get out on the lake a while. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Jesus took a nap. Jesus got tired and wasn't ashamed of it. Didn't feel that he had committed a sin. He slept. Does that mean it's okay if I sleep? And you sleep when you're tired? Are you more spiritual if you never sleep? I'm talking to me. I'm not talking to you. I'm preaching to me. I'm still working on me. I'm going to keep on working on me. Sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Why aren't you worried like the rest of us? I mean, how can you sleep when we're about to have a nuclear war? Get a placard and go march somewhere. Get a petition and go sign something. Don't you care? He got up, 
rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Isn't he something? Isn't he more than our minds can fathom? Don't you wish you had a dozen lifetimes to get to know more about him? Just think about it. Try to crawl into these words and feel what they mean and not just read what they mean. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. He called them, he healed them, he taught them, and he calmed them. You know what he really calmed that day? Well, I believe the miracle. I don't have any question about the fact that he calmed the storm. That wasn't the storm he was after. And that's still not the storm he's after. He calmed that storm to produce some faith in the heart of those disciples to calm the storm in them. Those are the storms that get us, aren't they? Those are the storms that get us. It's those storms at 3 o'clock in the morning when you wake up. And they may seem like little, little problems. Give them 30 minutes. Give them 30 minutes and you're up walking the floor. Give them an hour and you're a nervous wreck. Give them two hours and you're not fit to live with. The storm is in us. And what he did to Galilee, he wants to do to me and to you. He wants to call us, and to heal us, and touch us, and calm us. Not make us lazy, but give us directed energy, positive, creative power that is not dissipated by disease. He preached that, and he practiced that, and a lot more at the beach. I hope this week with your Bible in hand and his spirit in your heart and some imagination in your mind you'll spend some time at the beach with the Lord.
Let's stand and bow our heads. Dear Lord, we don't need to tell you how much we need to know. You know that. But we do want to tell you because we want you to know that we know it. That we want to know more of you. We want to understand more of you. We really want to be more like you want us to be. We want to be more the kind of person that you want us to be and become the kind of person you want us to become. Lord, we're conditioned, as you know, by so many things in our lives. Our culture, our religious background, our parents, our church history, our friends, so many things. Dear God, help us to give you some time to condition us with your spirit. And oh God, increasingly give us the discernment to tell the difference between culture and the crowd and Christ. Help us to know your spirit in all of his fullness. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Just as I am, we sang it I hope you will come. Trust in Christ, moving your membership, rededicating your life, whatever God impresses you to do. Maybe to come for prayer, rededication, whatever. These few moments of invitation, you come.